Imagine this. You're working late one night. You work in a laboratory and it's a large building that used to be a warehouse. Lately, people have been reporting strange occurrences when they're in the lab. People who don't normally believe in this type of thing have become convinced that the lab is haunted. The reason that they feel this way is because they say that when they enter the lab, they start to feel strange. People have reported things like cold spots or seeing things out of the corner of their eye or feeling that they're being watched. As you're working, you realize that someone else has entered the lab and is standing behind you and sort of to the side. When you turn and look directly at them, what you see is a gray, almost human-looking figure that then quietly fades into nothing. That was the experience of a man named Vic Tandy. And Mr. Tandy, being a scientist, decided to try to figure out what exactly had occurred that night and what had he really seen. And after some investigation, he discovered that in fact, he and his colleagues had been sharing their lab with something very unexpected. But it wasn't a ghost. What it was, was a low frequency standing wave. So typically how a sound wave works is it travels. But in this case, the wave was actually the, just the right frequency to be completely reflected back by the walls at each end of the lab, and it wasn't going anywhere. So in effect, it was folding back on itself, reinforcing peak energy in the center of the room. And once Mr. Tandy had figured this out, he then went ahead and calculated the frequency of the standing sound wave, and he found that it was about 18.98 hertz or cycles per second. Now that's very interesting because the lower level of what the human ear can detect in terms of sound is about 20 hertz. So this sound wave was just undetectable and yet it was having a significant impact on everyone in the lab. So the two questions to ask then are, first of all, where is this sound wave coming from? And secondly, what exactly was it doing to people? So the answer to the first question is they had installed a large industrial fan at one end of the building shortly before these experiences started. And when the, uh, the fan was switched off, the standing wave went away. So the second question uh, was answered by a number of other studies and other researchers who found the kind of effects that a standing wave like that would have on people. Uh, this had occurred in other places and they had noticed things like uh, people reporting feelings of unease, feelings of fear, feelings that they were being watched or were not alone in the room. And exposure to those kinds of vibrations also does physiological things like increase heart rate and can even cause hyperventilation. So if you are breathing very shallowly, but you're not aware of it, uh, typically what will start to happen is you will feel lightheaded and you will also start to feel 
uh, fearful and anxious. So those are some of the things that had been reported by his colleagues. But what about the ghost itself? Well, the other thing that a resonant frequency like that can affect is your eyes. And so um, causing a slight vibration to the eyeball would cause uh, what researchers refer to as a smearing of vision. So it would not be unreasonable to see dark shadowy forms um, based on initially something that was actually there, but then would be, uh, would be received by the retina differently and then would be interpreted by the brain. And that would involve what the person expected to see or maybe even feared seeing. To find out more about this, I had a conversation with Dr. Evan Jennings, who teaches physiological psychology and neuroanatomy. And I wanted to know more about the limits of our perceptions and where is the intersection between what we perceive, what we expect, and what we believe in? And how does that relate to the supernatural? To start off, Dr. Jennings played this recording for me. So just take a listen and see what you hear. So, I, I very definitely imagined things. <laughs> like, I can't honestly say I heard them, but I definitely imagined things. I imagined the phrase, bottom of the well. <laughs> I imagined the phrase, I imagined the word exterminate. <laughs> okay. And, but I, I didn't, I, I was, yeah, I mean, I could very definitely tell I, that's not, I wasn't hearing those things but I could imagine them based okay. on what was being said. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Because this is a distortion placed on an actual voice. So there's this real words exist. in there. Ah, yes. Okay, okay. So, yeah, so I know you were choosing your words carefully there, but you really were hearing words, but most people don't. Oh. So that's, so we're primed already, right? Right. To know yeah. what, that we're tra about to hear some talking. Yeah. Um, but when I do this in my intro class, I always ask them, what did you hear? And they're like, it sounded like a computer making noises. Yeah. Like, did you hear any sounds that were human speech? No, it was just computer sounds. And then you Time overlay it with... speech you just heard was manufactured as follows. In psychic research, the emotional distance between the researcher and his subject is inevitably diminished until it is no more than the distance between any two persons. The acquiescence of the subject to the demands of the researcher becomes nothing more nor less than an individual act of faith, of love. If there can be no love between researcher and subject, there can be no experimentation. Finally, listen to the sine wave speech sequence again. Inevitably diminished until it is no more than the distance 
I heard that clear as a bell the second time. Okay. I could hear every word. Yeah. Clear as a bell. Perfect. That's, that's crazy. Okay, so, so there were real words in there. Mm -hmm. I had a suspicion there were real words in there, but I couldn't make them out at all. Mm -hmm. And then once I heard what the words were supposed to be, I could hear them plain Mm -hmm. as day. Yeah. Okay, so. If I am looking for something that is invisible, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Does it help me or hurt me? I guess what I'm trying to figure out is what's the line between being open to seeing something or hearing something that is really there, but that you, your senses will not pick up, and tricking yourself into thinking you've seen or heard something when there's actually nothing there. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. No, it, co- it totally makes sense. And that's actually the line that I think people like you and I like to find, mm-hmm. right? Cause we, we already know like psychology behind finding what you're looking for and confirming your own biases, yeah. right? Um, selective attention and pattern recognition go hand in hand. So, I, you know, don't attend to something, then it doesn't exist in my memory. It never happened. Yeah. And, you know, there's plenty of cognitive stuff that can confirm that. But what about when you are looking for something that doesn't exist? That's kind of the opposite, right? Yeah. Ignoring something that does exist versus manifesting something that may not. Or... So talk about that. So manifesting something that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. We can do that. Yes. How do we do that? So that's, oh man, that's cool. So the place I usually like to start for centering it is, you know, when, (laughs) whenever you uh, do your laundry and you put all your laundry on your chair and then you wake up in the middle of the night and it's a demon. (laughs) Oh yeah. Every time. (laughs) And so that's like a, a great example of potentially looking for something and manifesting it, even though it doesn't exist. That's a simple a simple version. You're taking something that is physically there and misinterpreting it and you're using your top-down processing more or less to change the interpretation. That's mostly expectation driven. That can be done in terms of like visual illusions. Okay. Right. So, um, I, I just want to make a quick note. Those are birds in the background. Um, we are at Dr. Jennings house. And so the part of Cooper snoring this evening will be played by several birds. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So in terms of uh, wanting to, to see something that is based off of real physical stimuli, mm-hmm. a cool example of that is stimulating the fusiform face area of the brain. Okay. If you want to go like down the physio, physio route, right? So in a lot of physio experiments, what we can do is put electrodes, you know, we can even do open brain surgery 
and apply electrodes to certain areas of the brain. And by stimulating that area, we can make you see stuff plain as day. And what's really cool about that is, is that sort of a reductionist theory about this metaphysical experience, or is that a gateway? Exactly, right? exactly, yeah. yes. So, so are you making them see something that isn't there, or are you allowing them to see something that is there that yeah. they can't see with their regular brain processes? Right, right, and we know that the human field of vision is so limited, right? Like Do we, we know that? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, birds, for example, right? They have way more types of cones in their retinas than we do. Oh. Like 80% of their brain is dedicated to vision, whereas for us it's 50, which is still a lot. We see more things than, you know, protozoan creatures do. Okay. But our visual, our light, our, our ability to perceive visual stimuli is heavily reliant on the quality and diversity of our photoreceptors. Okay. In our retina itself. You vary that in any way you suddenly don't perceive things that do exist, like colors. Okay. Ah, okay. Versus you can add things that now allow you to see things that you didn't know existed before. So examples of that would be like ultraviolet light. So the visual, visual light spectrum is very small compared to the total amount of light that exists in front of us right now. And, you know, we have infrared technology that can show that to us, which is, you know, some ways that people will justify seeing entities, mm -hmm. right, that, that we can't with their regular eyes. Um, cats. Okay. Cats see stuff that we can't, right? Cooper sees stuff that we can't, which is terrifying. What kind of stuff? Like shadows. Okay. Dogs have fewer cones, uh, which they make up for with their sense of smell. Okay. Um, but... Cats and dogs are both very good at seeing shadows that we can't. And so that's why your cat will look at the corner and stare at it. Or your dog will suddenly alert himself to something that you can't see because our reality isn't the truth. It's just one version of it. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I know, I know, it's creepy. <laughs> but it's true. Like We think that what we're experiencing right now is the truth, and it's not. It's, it's biased, of course, with the top-down approach but it's also false like even turn like my own vision is so flawed based on probably some sort of damage that's in there that I don't know about right um but not only that the brain literally depends on existence to accommodate and understand certain stimuli which you know about you know from synaptic pruning during childhood right mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of evidence that shows that bilingual people can hear things that monolingual people can't. Wow, okay. Yeah. And so if you look across the world, we see that bilingual individuals have more paranormal experiences. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, and, and are they specific to they hear things? It's hearing? It's Most hearing of it, driven? Well, it's not only that, but it also factors into, and this is kind of where it gets convoluted, their attitudes. Okay, right. okay, that so seems important. It is important, it is important. Personality factors are associated with it. Cultural beliefs are associated with paranormal experience. But so is bilingualism, which is really interesting. Um, and if you're not exposed to certain sounds by a certain age, you don't hear them. Okay. And so that's one explanation for why, uh, you know, when I tried to speak Arabic, mm -hmm. which is a total failure, uh, my Arabic friends will say, okay, the syllable, you say it, 
I'm like, well, they go, that's nothing like what I said. Yeah. I literally can't hear that because my brain has pruned that out Mm -hmm. from an early age. Think about what else that applies to, right? Mm -hmm. Kids see stuff all the time before all of that is taken away. There are common um, perceptions that are described across many cultures and across many generations of kids all describing the same thing. And so there's, I think there's some validity to that. Okay. That if we not only, you know, want to see something but can't because we don't have the mechanics for it. Right. I think that's an important thing to consider. And this is something I had not really thought about, which is the limit, just the limitations of the sensory apparatus that I'm working with, right? Mm -hmm. Which uh, culturally, genetically do damage, like you said. Uh, there, there, there are, I think what you're saying is there's a lot of things I can't see. Yeah. Or hear. Or, or hear. even touch. Um, wow. And we, we can see easily in the brain that you can think about seeing something, and that part of your primary visual cortex will respond as though you are seeing it. That's how dreaming happens. Okay. Essentially. The same is true of hallucinations, auditory hallucinations in individuals with schizophrenia. Okay. And so I can't remember, and this would be where I should have done a bit more research, individuals who claim that they are able to speak to spirits or to talk to those who are not present um, have similar activities in their auditory cortices when they're hearing something from someone, even though nothing is stimulating that part of the brain. So what do we do with that information, right? Because typically, if we know someone is, has, uh, has schizophrenia, mm-hmm. auditory hallucinations are part of that diagnosis, right? They're part of that, or for some, they're part of that yeah. syndrome. And so, our, and we're treating someone with schizophrenia based on the fact that typically things are not working out for them, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not that we we would seek someone out and be like, oh, you're hearing voices, let's drag you in. It's more like because of the voices, because of what the voices are saying yes. or just because of the fact that the voices exist at all, this person is now homeless and this person can't, you know, can't function or can't cope or is, um, you know, is suffering in some yeah. way. And so, you know, in an attempt to, I'm air quoting, help, we, we medicate them, right, right. To, to make the voices stop. And we do all this under the assumption that there is nothing real about those voices, mm-hmm. that those voices are being generated by their own brain, mm-hmm. and, um, and what we see on the outside is that they're causing this person harm or damage. Yeah. Um, how safe is that assumption? Yeah. Well, here, think about this. There... The United States is one of the places in which those voices are specifically negative. That really? That makes a minority of what the voices are actually like in other countries. Really? Yeah. So what kind of, uh, what kind of things are being said or what, what kind of... Take care of your family. Really? Yeah. Okay. Take care of yourself. Okay. Um, it's mostly in, well, from what I've read, uh, is in areas in India, mm-hmm. um, Africa parts of Africa, I forget the name of the country. Um, the voices are different in Japan. Really? Oh, yeah. Every country's got different voices. So there's some sort of cultural artifact that may be contributing to that. Or 
Yeah, and I mean, this is just kind of the question right now is what's, why? What's the difference there? The voices in, you know, in the, the American society seem to be very negative, seem to be accusatory, mm-hmm. seem to be linked to uh, persecutions and the person having impulses to do things that they never would do, right? Okay. Um, whereas, yeah, in Africa, it's, 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 it's more so um, have you, and I'm just, oh, because I can't think of exactly what it is. I remember it's family. Has something to do with you should do better, stuff like that. So, what should we do with that? I have no idea. I think that there, yeah, there's well, other cultures too, like not just you know super developed cultures. People who hear voices like that are considered gifted, mm-hmm. right? And it's not like this is a new thing. So you and I because of our own experiences and our training and our education, we both are very well versed in things that seem real but are not real, mm-hmm. right? Like genuinely, genuinely are um, illusions um, or are the, the result of, of, um, of a brain that is not working correctly, mm-hmm. right? And so how do we, or how do you, how do you think about picking that apart from a genuine the let's just say the existence of the of of um supernatural sounds so corny at this juncture <laughs> but but how do you think about that in terms of cuz we started off talking about perception and how actually our perception is profoundly limited mm-hmm. so there are things we can't see there are things we can't perceive but then we also know that in many, 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 many cases that we've personally interacted with, people that are perceiving things that no one else can perceive, there really is some damage to their, to their, their mental processing, right? Mm-hmm. Or there really is something is, and I don't know, do I say something is wrong? Yeah, no. Well, that's the thing, right? It's, I would say rather than right or wrong, I would say there's a biological influence there. And I think it's an open discussion on whether, you know, in terms of like drugs, for example, we, there's specific types of serotonin receptors, 5-HT2A. We stimulate that, bam, you are having a massive hallucination. And okay. that's distributed throughout the sensory areas of the brain, right? Why that exists, we don't know. You know, that's the other thing is like, why is this here? Right. So <laughs> could, could that have a purpose? That's the, that's the question. Interesting. And what could that purpose possibly be? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. This is an open discussion, right? So yeah, like, absolutely. Why is it? We know that we can see, we can experience things that, and for the record, the literature describes it as paranormal. So if you want like a, a scientific term, oddly let's enough, go with that. It's paranormal. <laughs> That's kind of a, yeah. What's the word for when you're trying to think of the opposite? There's two wrong synonym. No, it's two opposites at the same time. Paradox? Paradox. No. Is that it? Yes, it All is. Right. Go us. Job. $5. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, damage in the brain. We know that we can have very specific experiences when, with age, the cortex starts to degenerate. That's natural. That's normal. The cortical volume literally shrinks mm-hmm. over time. It just so happens that a lot of our sensory processing areas are along the cortex and within all these convolutions. 
Some of these areas are more prone to degeneration than others. That includes our posterior parietal cortex, which is a major hub for sensory integration. So you have visual stuff that's going up here. You have auditory stuff that's going up here, all the same hub. It's packaged together in a nice sensory experience, forwarded to the frontal lobe for us to understand consciously. That's one of the first places that we see degeneration in schizophrenia. This is one of the things that we see if we uh, inhibit this area with electrodes or analgesics, different types of uh, antagonists as well, that suddenly we can't pair sounds with what we're, hear what we're seeing, right? That's where the walls start talking. Okay. Right? That's the natural. yellow wallpaper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or we start to see faces in things that are otherwise not faces. Mm -hmm. This kind of comes down to the sine wave speech thing again, except that this is a naturally occurring event. And, you know, there's like a whole literature out there that no one talks about. And I'm finally starting to see some advertisements about uh, for Parkinson's medications, which is this whole other thing. There's, there's Lewy body dementia and there's Parkinson's disease. The two are usually comorbid with each other. Okay. Parkinson's is largely a motor-based issue. Lewy body dementia makes its way up into Parkinson's, but also basically ravishes the brainstem. And when that happens, the parts of your brainstem that forward information to your cortex get messed up. So it's sending the wrong information to the wrong place. Okay. And so it's like a bottom up version of experiences. Okay. And like the reticular formation is a major hub in the brainstem that controls wakefulness and REM stages or sleep stages, including REM stage, which is really important for this conversation. And when we go through Lewy body dementia, that's one of the, m the major sites where these Lewy bodies are clustered. Up to 10 years, before people are diagnosed with Parkinson's disease or Lewy body dementia, they start acting out their dreams in their sleep. That's one of the most significant predictors up to 10 years prior. Wow. Yeah. And so REM behavior disorder is like a huge predictor of that potentially being an issue. And people go get you know, tested for all these different deficiencies. And hey, it turns out you're at a high risk for Lewy body dementia. That makes its way <clears throat> eventually through the cortex so that now on top of these issues of not being able to control what's coming up to our brain, what's already there starts to degenerate too. So we're misinterpreting the information that's there. Okay. And now we're having to treat Parkinson's individuals who are advanced at least with suddenly, you know, seeing most of the time it's faces. Okay. Most of the time they see faces that aren't there. Oh, wow. And this is actually a sub syndrome of Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia, as well as probably many others called Charles Bonnet syndrome. Okay. And so it's something that uh, needs a lot of attention because these, these people who are, are totally normal, uh, you know, may have some tremors at rest, right? But now why are they seeing faces in the carpet? Why are they seeing uh, another sub, sub symptom, which is Lilliputian hallucinations, which is little fairies. Really? Yeah. Wow, and they all look the same. To all the different people? That's where it gets eerie. That is where it gets eerie. Yeah. 
so is this cross cultures yeah. as well? Yeah. Yeah. And this is kind of where the mystery comes in. Like, first of all, why do we have these hallucinatory receptors distributed all throughout our brain? What purpose does that serve? Second of all, <clears throat> why do people all, all experience the same thing? That's creepy to me. I can explain the faces mm -hmm. straight up. That's easy. Yeah. We have a part of our brain that we stimulate. You can, you'll see faces. You yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, for what it's worth, there's also a part of the middle temporal lobe that we can stimulate and you suddenly experience memories as though they're real, crystal clear. And so there's potentially deja vu tied into that. Okay. Um, but yeah, these Lilliputian hallucinations, there's a whole literature on them. Uh, you can experience them with certain drugs, of course. Um, that's one theory behind Alice in Wonderland. Say, wait, say more about that. Alice in Wonderland syndrome? Yeah. That's a... Uh, things change in size. Okay. Yeah. And Lilliputian hallucinations are the specific term for things that are suddenly very small. Okay. And manifest. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> Choose your poison. Right. Do you want degeneration or do you want <laughs> drugs? Because we can get you there either way. Wow. Um, but yeah, why they all appear as... There's some creepy, creepy drawings. Uh, oh, they're so creepy. I should, I should show you. Uh, little crab people. Um, oh, what was this other one? I was talking with my physics students about this the other day. Uh, the Japanese man in uniform. Really common. Really? Yes. Now, this was a paper done in the 70s, so it may not be, they may have, have some better explanations for that now. But uh, yeah, there's a few case studies clustered together talking about the most common experiences amongst all these individuals with Lilliputian and Charles Bonnet syndrome. And uh, yeah, the faces are really common. Uh, the aliens, also common. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. Because that that this is where I think this gets really interesting when the hallucination different people who have never met from different cultures yep. are seeing the same thing. Yes. And what is your brain doing? Right? Oh, man. Why why that thing? Why that thing? It ties back to I, I mean if you wanna think about it from potentially the the body doing this and giving you the information to interpret. There's aspects of that that make sense. Like most of these these experiences occur at night, mm -hmm. right? That makes sense. There's less light for you to yeah. accurately use. And I mean, just regular people, right? Like oh, yeah. ordinary people have um, what is it, hypnagogic and hypnopathic yeah. hallucinations, yeah. right? So right when you're falling asleep, right when you're waking up, yep. you have the experience of seeing. And very often, it's an it's it's the stereotypical alien abduction. Yes. So you have the feeling that you're floating. You, you know, you, people tend to, they'll see a bright light. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll, they'll see the sort of humanoid face that's yeah. not quite human. And so that, I mean, that's sort of the everyday person version of what you're yeah. talking about because that, that can happen to anybody, you yeah. know, in the absence of any deterioration, right? See, if you want to see a ghost, we can make that happen with sleep paralysis. Okay. That's, it's highly correlated with sleep paralysis. Okay. And narcolepsy. Okay. Interestingly enough. So to get you to a stage where you're in REM sleep, but you're still conscious, 
is a weird par paradoxical event where these areas in your brainstem and your reticular formation are still making your body stay paralyzed mm -hmm. like it should be. Your prefrontal cortex has started to come back on, which it's not during REM sleep, which is why you have such crazy imaginative dreams. But you're also not really harnessing a part of your brainstem, well, it's not your brainstem, um, part of your diencephalon called the thalamus, which is the sensory relay center. Okay. And what happens is while you're conscious and functioning normally, remember, we're inhibiting all the time. That's what we've learned how to do. Well, serotonin and GABA are major inhibitory neurotransmitters. They're always telling the thalamus, shut up, shut up, shut up. You don't need to, you don't need to send messages all the time. Just, okay. just these ones. Selective attention in a way. Yeah, yeah, just the important stuff. Just the important stuff, yeah. and we want it to make sense, so we want it to go over here if it's vision, you know, which is kind of ties back into synesthesia, right? So issues with the thalamus, it get stuff's told to go to the wrong place. So you experience two ah, things at once. So someone who see, uh, someone who um, hears colors. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yep. Okay. Yeah, thalamic abnormalities. Um, and so when you're asleep, generally, and you're not dreaming, if you're in like your restful stage four, makes us feel so good after we wake up from that, then you're not having a whole lot of activity. You've got a lot of serotonin suppressing the thalamus. You're getting general like good sleep. But when REM comes on, all of the reins are lifted off. Thalamus sends messages wherever it wants, essentially, and no prefrontal cortex on to say that doesn't make sense. Okay. Right? Which yeah. is why we have these dreams where we're so so devastated that there's like a couch. Right. Right. <laughs> so we can get caught between that if we sleep on our backs, if we have a depressant in our system, mm -hmm. um, if we're obese, fifty-five-year-old man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, if we have narcolepsy and we transition into an out of REM stage very quickly and, or if we're stressed. So basically anything that is not a perfect depiction of what, you know, like tra transitioning between the sleep stages, you can get caught between that and you will very vividly experience another being in front of you. Okay. So the fact that you're a good sleeper means that you've not had that happen to you, mm -hmm. but it can easily. All right, so that's gonna happen more often with age. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this is one explanation for why people experience this a bit more as they get older. There's these differences in brainstem activity, reorganization, on, on the synaptic creations that are in there. Um, but you you top that with a, a genetic issue, uh, personality differences, openness to experience, mm -hmm. um, suggestibility is a major predictor of a paranormal experience. Okay. Have you ever tried to be hypnotized? I am very easy to hypnotize. Oh, interesting. Another of my father's experiments. My, my dad was a psychologist <laughs> and uh, did, uh, did all kinds of fun experiments on his children. And one of, us, one of them was hypnotizing us. And, oh and I, I, I was a very good subject. So where does this leave me? Well, up until now, I've been thinking about this kind of using a basic critical thinking approach. So what am I being asked to believe? And then what evidence is there for this thing I'm being asked to believe? And then is there a better explanation or an explanation with more evidence? And that works out great in cases like the one I introduced at the beginning of this episode. But after my conversation with Dr. Jennings, I'm thinking that 
this topic might be about more than evidence. So for example, why does our brain allow us to hallucinate? Why does our brain have chemicals and receptors that are actually there for the purpose of letting us see things that aren't really in the room or that aren't in the room as far as we can perceive with our senses. So this episode has raised more questions than answers, but fascinating questions. And it's also left me wondering if my susceptibility to hypnosis might finally come in handy.